This episode contains themes of substance abuse and suicide. One topic, two chicks, three points of view. What does it really mean to do time? Police emergency. Life in prison. Keeping people safe is the first duty of government. You can get spies, you can get heroin, you can get crack. It is criminality, pure and simple. I'm facing time. It's not on the hiring it's common scars. I don't know how long it could be, four years, ten years. There's not one solution. Could be life. Who cares for the men behind these doors? Bird. Hello, check. Check one, two. (laughs) Welcome to season three, Behind Bars with Bird. This season we'll be recording exclusively from different prisons across the UK. For our third episode, we've teamed up with HMP Weimar, which is a Category C prison in Lancashire for adult males. This time, we spoke to men who were part of the therapeutic community at Weimar, or the TC for short. The TC at Weimar is long-term residential treatment for people dealing with issues of addiction and is one of the few of its kind still operating in the UK. The four men we spoke to were coming to the end of a 12-month programme there. The TC at Weimar operates independently of the main prison and has capacity for 70 people, with a full programme of activities to support a drug-free return to the community. A large drug and alcohol team work with all the men to prevent relapse on a substance-free unit. Support includes psychosocial interventions and the accredited Building Skills for Recovery programme. It was inspiring to see the growth and success that being part of a more caring and supportive prison regime allowed. Let's hear Phil's story about how he overcame his battle with alcohol after he realised the harm it was causing himself and others. So my name is Phil, um, I'm 39 years of age. Grew up in the northwest of England, uh, in a seaside town. Had a really good upbringing, both my parents, I'm his only child, so I was, I was spoilt. Did well at school, got to 980Cs, GCSE level. Uh, I did go on to do just over a year in my A-levels, but I dropped out. Uh, went into full-time employment. So, yeah, working life, early teens, late 20s, typical uh, teenager, typical lad in his 20s, used to go out in, in town, in Blackpool. But I suppose with regard to my issues with alcohol, because that's it's mainly been about alcohol, um, they probably, it probably became a problem in my mid-20s, where I was... I was in a cycle, like a vicious cycle of doing well, earning money, enjoying myself, but I'd lose jobs. So employment, I've had some really good jobs, management positions in hospitality and entertainment. And from like my mid-twenties to, well, right up until my, 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 the offence that I'm in for now, which was July 2020, um, just a recurring theme of wanting to address it addressing it to a certain degree, thinking I could then handle it myself, things would be going great, and fooling myself into thinking that I could have one or two drinks, I could go to the pub, I deserve this, I work hard, you know, and payday, obviously money in the bank was a big trigger for me. It was, um, I, was I wasn't spending it on the right things, the right things being obviously possessions and working towards buying a house, that sort of thing, the things that normal people do. I wasted jobs, lost relationships through alcohol and the potential was always there to do something with my life but alcohol seemed to have a, a super tight hold grip of my potential 
in my life. I might have been in a relationship, but looking back now, that wasn't, I didn't put relationships first. Um, even with my parents as well, I've, some of the things that I used to say and do with my parents and family, um, which obviously I'm ashamed of, it would be a case of wanting to enjoy myself in the moment came above everything else. And a typical session, my, my issue was binge drinking. I could go weeks and weeks without a drink, which is part, probably part of the reason why I thought I didn't have a, I wasn't an alcoholic. I didn't think of myself as an alcoholic. I just couldn't stop once I started. And it's very easy to think, well, just don't start in the first place. But when you're in that environment, you're working in that environment, and you haven't got a lot of, a lot of other interests to fill your free time with, going to the pub and socialising and enjoying yourself, being on the other side of the bar is what I used to do. Um, that used to be, you know, I'd, I'd go into town and do some shopping and I'd go to the pub. It, that would be what I would do with my free time. I'd meet up with people after I'd been shopping. So I'd, I'd reward myself with some shopping and then I'd reward myself with having a few drinks and that invariably turned into me losing my shopping. And even, you know, talking about it seems crazy now, but in terms of uh, amounts, you probably, on a three, four, five day binge, um, you're talking 10 to 12 pints of lager. If I was drinking at home, it'd be a bottle of vodka as well, a bottle of some other spirits. Basically, what, whatever I could afford, um, I would buy um, until, I, until I could drink no more, really. We asked Phil if he'd had any previous convictions before this one. So my one and only previous conviction that I was incarcerated for was a drugs offence in 2009. I got two years for possession with intent to supply class A's. So I'd been, in, I'd been in that world, if you like, and I got back into that sort of taking drugs after I got out of prison. It was probably about two or three years after I got out in 2009 that I sort of got back in, slipped back into that after drinking. So yeah, the ambulance had been called numerous times. Mum and Dad had been really worried about me heart rate dangerously high after drinking so much. I used to cope with the, the aftermath of the binge drinking with more drinking. And obviously I didn't turn up for work and got into the cycle of guilt. So I'd be doing really well, things were looking great. Like I say, money in the bank, uh, I can handle this. It's, it's, you know, I've turned over a new leaf, etc., etc. Been to a few counseling sessions, great stuff. And then weeks, months later, something would happen be out enjoying myself, I'd carry it on too far, I wouldn't go into work, I'd lose my job or I'd get into trouble. I think I've done it all again, I'm useless and get into that cycle and, and what did it used to be the cause and answer to all my problems basically. Phil tells us about the events leading up to his offence. Without going into too much detail, it was it was the last day of a, a long binge binging session for like four or five days, the week after my birthday. Um, which is obviously another major trigger or high-risk situation in my birthday and wanted to celebrate. I was intoxicated. I've been drinking Stella since 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock in the morning. That led me to wanting other substances and that was all part of the, the storm that created uh, the circumstances which led up to the events. It was, um, it was me who called the emergency services Remanded due to, due to begin trial in January 21. Uh, I was arrested in July. It was just after the restrictions had lifted. People were going back to the pubs. So I was on remand. And then I pleaded guilty to a, a lesser offence. Uh, I was originally arrested for attempted murder. 
and the lesser lesser offence, but still very serious offence, was Section 18, wounding with intent. And anybody that knows me knew, knew that I had issues with alcohol, but to call me a violent, aggressive person, me normally, as I am now, is, is that's not me. Alcohol changes you, and drugs change you, and even my barrister said, there were no drugs in the world, no illegal substances in the world, I'd be out of a job, because it turns normal people into people that, that it's just not them. It's strange, but I've had to accept that I've, I've, I've committed serious violent offence. But, as I say, that's how far and much, that's the impact that drugs can have, drugs and alcohol can have on, on a seemingly normal person. We asked Phil what impacts being in prison has had on him. There was never any thoughts of, any dark thoughts of suicide or anything like that. I was gonna, I was gonna face it, but it was the unknown of, how, obviously, and it's natural to think, how long am I gonna, gonna be in here for? Because I knew it was gonna be a custodial, obviously it was gonna be a custodial sentence, but it was the length of time, and then you start thinking about your family, how old, how old are my parents gonna be by the time, if and when I get out, um, how much am I gonna miss, and did the day, the day I was sentenced, it's a bit hazy, because the judge obviously gives his remarks and you have an idea of who you are in your mind and to hear somebody describe you as this, that and the other is, is, is hard. And obviously with the victim impact statement as well, that was tough. To verbalise what I'd done to another human being was hard, um, really hard, but nowhere near as, as hard as what he's gone through and is still going through. But yeah, it was, it, was, it was a daze, but as I say, there was, there was a few lads in Preston that, that helped me through that. Um, I haven't touched or even thought about touching alcohol or drugs since the night of the offence. Because mine was not, it wasn't a dependency. It was a way of life, that makes sense. It was just what Phil did on his days off. He used to go and enjoy himself in the pub. When you, when you sat on your, your own, in your own flat, drinking bottles of vodka in pint glasses, um, with, with a bit of mixer, it's, it's something seriously wrong. Pasky never thought his own drug use was an issue, but following an incident which led him into prison, he began to reflect on his own substance use and joined the TC. But I've always had a good family upbringing, you know what I mean? My dad, he worked in paper mills, my mum was, worked in the cotton mills. And I was brought up in like, I was born in 68, so I was brought up in the 70s and 80s. Um, obviously the good times, you know, the 80s. Um, and I got into drugs really at school. Um, we used to get a bit of weed and go in the toilets and smoke the weed, you know, and go into and storm. We used to pick magic mushrooms in the, in the, um, on the playing fields, at, you know, during dinner time and stuff like that. And then as I, as I grew older and when I first left school, I was on the door and I ended up going to Glastonbury one year with my mate hitchhiking to Glastonbury. Basically, loved it, you know, like the drug culture and everything about it. Um, and seeing these lads um, selling um, weed and pills and stuff, so, and making a lot of money. And that's what I thought. I thought I could make a bit of money doing this. It's a good idea, this. So when I got back, um, I started using my dull money and buying a bit of weed and then doubling my money, just going in pubs selling it in, in uh, like 16ths and 8ths. I got into DJing, um, so I, I used to DJ, I've DJed in places like the Hacienda and places like that. 
more I got more into selling drugs then into into selling um, uh, ease um, and more weed. But when, when I got into my, in my twenties, I ended up having kids. Slowed down a little bit, but I used to still sell a bit of weed at home. Just selling ounces, just used to buy an ounce a week and make me own smoke really, from me and my girlfriend, because she smoked as well. Became an electrician, that was my trade. I was an electrician for time, but I was still selling weed. This, I mean, I've always DJed and stuff like that, so I've always been involved in drugs. Then I got into taking cocaine, so I did the same thing. So I've always been into a believer in to make my own smoke or to make my own sniff, I sold, I sold whatever I was taking. So I just used to sell a little bit, not to, like, just to my friends, you know, so not, not to anybody. I met this guy uh, when I was DJing and he used to be quite, he was quite a big guy, you know, he, he sold a lot of stuff. So I was buying bits off him because it was a bit cheaper, I thought, this is good. So one day he rang me, he says, look, I'm, I've got this proposition for you. If you, I need stuff importing from different countries. If you can get me a couple of warehouses sorted and stuff like that, we can, you can make some good money here. So it took me a bit to, maybe a few months to think about it. And then I thought, well, I can do this. I can get myself a bit of money, sort my family out. I can have some good times. Cause I've always struggled. I might be an electrician, but I've always struggled in life with money. Anyway, I did finish my job, ended up getting a couple of warehouses, getting shipments of cocaine and, 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 and weed in. And it was happening, it happened for a while. I'm, I don't really want to say how long, but um, it happened for a while. We, we, we was getting like uh, vehicles and stuff sent over from Amsterdam with tires full of tablets. Um, it was getting pretty crazy at one point. I didn't used to do anything. I didn't used to deliver anything or anything like that, just to make, make sure that everything was sorted. And one day I had to, I got asked to drop some pills off in, in a certain place. So I took these pills, not thinking about wearing any gloves or anything like that. And then the week after, I got a knock on the door. It was the police We found these pills, which was like over 5,000 pills. I found these pills with my fingerprints on the, on the bag, yeah. But I didn't, I'd never been done for anything before, apart from drinking and driving when I was 17. And that's when they got me, that's when they got me, my fingerprints from then. So then they got phones off me. They linked me with this other, this gang in Berry. I got phones off them and everything. Basically, just, my world just turned upside down then. Mm. I ended up in the cells. But then they released me because it was just fingerprints on, on pills. But once I got these phones off, these guys and these and me, the links of everybody together, and basically that's how I've ended up in prison. Mm -hmm. First sentence to, did me for 30 kilo of cocaine and 5,000 pills, and I got 11 years from the first sentence, which obviously just tore my world apart. Luckily, my family stood by me. Yeah, I used to get up in the morning and just basically have a cup of coffee and then a line and coke. Um, and then I used to go to wherever I was going, mainly one of the warehouses, and just get myself a big piece of coke, because it was just there available. And then I just used to have that all day, and then be smoking, smoking, instead like people smoke cigarettes, I'd just make a joint. And I didn't used to put tobacco in it, tobacco in it, it was just pure, pure weed, you know what I mean? So, and it was just that I, I, got, I got to the point where I liked that from being high, 
to coming down. You know what I mean? It's like you get the euphoria of the cocaine, but then the, the weed is trying to bring you down, and they used to like that feeling. You get what I'm saying? So as soon as I had a line, I'd make a joint. I knew, I knew it was like a problem, but I didn't think it was like a problem, uh, like a big problem sort of thing, because it was just like a standard thing, you know? And everyone I met, everyone had sniff or had the smoke weed, you know what I mean? It was just like part of life for me. And it was just, it was more when I come to this prison, really. And um, I, I was, I'd spoke to Dars and everything about that, and then seeing people around me, you know, on this wing and stuff like that, and then just having discussions with people and then really like, well, yeah, I think I did have a problem, you know what I mean? Um, and, but it was, in my head at the time, it wasn't really a problem. It was just something I was doing. And then not really realising how much I was taking neither, you know what I mean? And then thinking, wow. Paskey reflects on what changed for him when he joined the TC. Um, like I said, when I, I sort of saw the light when I come on here and I joined, joined the TC, and I started, because I've never really been one for opening myself up, and I started opening myself up a bit more, and I've just thought, well, I've got too much to lose, in, which, which I knew anyway, but I mean, I think it's more of, it hit me more that I've got a lot to lose. I mean, my family stood by me, my mum stood by me, my brother stood by me, my, my daughter, my, my son, you know, good friend, my, my missus, my good friends have stood by me, you know what I mean? All the friends that used to hang around me when they used to give out the cork and buy drinks all the time, you don't see them anymore. Andy has been in and out of prison for many years. He explains to us why he hopes that this time is the last time. I got put in the first school at the age of 12, because I was disruptive, whatever they, they put it. Um, I was there till I was 15. Literally straight from there I was out committing crime. Come to prison when I was six, first time I was 16. Started using Class A drugs in jail. And that was my life then, drugs in jail. I'd get out, I'd be out short periods and back in again. So I didn't really consider it a problem. It was just something I did on a daily basis. I didn't consider I was a functioning addict. I wasn't getting up having to go out shoplifting and stuff like that. I was I was committing crime, but I wasn't like I say, I wasn't going out on a daily basis committing crime. I always had drugs. It wasn't a case of I ran out of drugs, I always had drugs around me. So but it was when I was about twenty-eight. I come out of what I'd done a, I served six years out of the sentence and I'd kept myself clean for two years but the first thing I did when I got out was went straight back on the drugs and it'd been a couple of months after I'd been out I suddenly thought yeah what am I doing here but it didn't it still took another 20 years after that to change you know what I mean? family really I'd never said to my family oh, I won't be back I won't do nothing and it was a phone call with my mum and she just said oh, you know I'm not going to be here much longer I don't want to see you in jail and she asked me to make her a promise, and I'd never made, you know, and so I promised her, I said, I won't, I won't, be, I won't come back after this sentence. And that's probably what made me decide to change, because, like, I say, I've never promised them anything, but if I do say I'll do something to them, I'll, I'll, I'll stick to it, you know what I mean? I ended up, I was here, I come here from Preston. I was disruptive over there, I was always off my head on spice, whatever you call it. On basic, getting nicked every other day. And uh, I ended up in the seg. And they couldn't decide what to do with me. And they said, there's someone, like I said, someone said the TC. And I was like, nah, I've heard loads of rubbish about it. So they brought me over a few times, spent an afternoon over here. And then, like I say, I was on it, you know, it was a week before Christmas. So I just thought, you know what, I'll go over there for a month, sit with the TV. I'll come on here and I've, I just got into it. I just thought maybe this, is, this can help. And it has helped, you know what I mean? It has helped. 
they'll know I'm not on drugs because like I say I never hid my drugs I didn't sit there smoking in front of them but all sorts but they always knew I was on drugs um, just by the, the people I hung around with as well most of the time I think uh, they will see a change in me once more. yeah they will see a change because I'll I say I'm not putting. I'm, I'm not willing to go back to what I was. I'm not willing that under no circumstances I'm not going backwards. Um, this is my last sentence. I won't be back in jail. I won't do anything to get recalled or anything like that. I'll, I'm not coming back. Scott shared a heartbreaking story with us. Despite everything he's been through, he's optimistic for the future ahead. My name's Scott from Bradford in Yorkshire. I'm 39 in a couple of weeks. I was in care from a young age and I was in care from like 12, 13, 14 year old. When I was 15, I got put, I got put into children's homes at 14 and then I was in children's home for about a year and a half, two years. Then when I was 15, I got sentenced to, I got custodial sentence and I got two years. And ever since then, it's always, it's always been the same routine, the same pattern, get out of prison with the best intentions end up mixing back in with the same cycle and back into prison. Um, only a couple of times where I've gone out of prison, I've actually done well. And that's when I've had a bit of something behind me. Because the way, the way I see it, if you get out of prison and you've got um, employment and you've got accommodation, you've got every chance to succeed. If you've not got them two things, then you're destined to come back to prison. You know what I mean? And I, I, firmly, I firmly believe that you are a product of your environment and if all you've known all your life is crime and drugs when your back's against the wall and you're struggling you're going to turn to what you know and if all you know is crime and drugs you're going to turn to crime and drugs i'll tell you the situation where it is with my parents um a few a few years ago well quite a few years ago my mum was allergic to penicillin um she went abroad for the first time i was in prison at the time i was 15 at the time and she went abroad she come back she had an abscess in her leg She's gone into hospital. She, they said, oh, we're gonna keep you in overnight and get it drained, whatever, whatever. Um, she had a red plastic band on, you know, allergic to penicillin. It was on a medical record, she was allergic to penicillin. The staff was told she was allergic to penicillin. Now, when a, a doctor apparently been doing a back-to-back -back shift, gave her an injection called Magnapin, which contains penicillin, and it put her in, in a, an anaphylactic shock. And uh, she ended up in a coma. She was in a coma for like 14 months, 15 months. I ended up, end up having to get the machine switched off because there, there was no chance of ever being fully cognitive, fully recovering, you know what I mean? And in that process, that 14, 15 months, he dad on himself. And I was in jail, so my head was in a bad place. I was, I got out. When, when, when that happened with my mum, I was 15. I remember it, I was down the block in Weatherby and it was my birthday and they, they come and got me from the block, took me to the hospital to see my mum and when I got back to the wing, back to the prison, they put me in the hospital wing, the next day I got my mum's birthday card under the door and it was like, wow, I couldn't, I couldn't comprehend it, it was like you couldn't script it, if you couldn't, it couldn't be planned any worse than how it, how it, went, how it went down. But like with regards to extend, extended family, I don't really have any extended family. I've, I don't, like let's say for instance now, if I wanted to get banged up and I wanted to talk to someone on the phone, because we've got phones in the cells now, I've got no one to ring. 
I mean, there was a family day the other day and I helped prep it for everyone, helped like arrange everything and set everything up. And I had no one to come visit me. My dad was an armed robber. My dad was a drug user. You know what I mean? I always remember, well, I say I always remember, I, I, I remember vaguely memories growing up of me and my mum being on the run from my dad, hiding from my dad. Years later, I always remember, remember my mum saying that when I do something wrong or when I do, do something bad, you're just like your dad, you end up just like your dad. Now, I think if you drill that into a kid's head enough, it's almost like you're pushing that kid subconsciously into that, into that life. And with what was going on around, the dynamics, the surroundings, you know, in my, 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 my bubble, my environment, I think I was destined for failure from the start. But you don't realise it when you're young. But yeah, that's, 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 that's pretty much all I know about my dad. He was a well-respected man in his circle, but in, in life, he, he wasn't a well-respected man. But I also understand, I, I can't, I, I can't, I can knock him, I can judge him for what my dad did and the amount of attention what he showed me. But then it makes me think, well, look at me. I'm doing the same thing, it's like it's, re it's repeated. It makes me think, was my dad like this in prison? Was my dad repentful and regretful and show empathy and stuff like that, you know what I mean? Because I genuinely do. Don't get me, it's took me years to learn that, but I'm genuinely regretful for some of the decisions I've made. Scott shared the reasons behind his social drug use and how that escalated over time. But for me personally, I was more of, it was more of, um, if I was with one set of people and they were doing one set of drugs, then I'd, I'd take them drugs with them. But then I might go see someone else and be with them and they're taking another drugs and I'd take drugs with them. So it was never really a case of, oh, I lived and died for a particular drug. I was more of a social drug user. If someone used to say to me, do you want some drugs? I'd be, I wouldn't say, what kind? I'd just say, yeah, <laughs> which is pretty sad, really. That's what I, that's what I was like. When I first started taking drugs, it was cannabis. And I think that's the case with a lot of people using cannabis, and cannabis is the gateway drug to other drugs. But because I like, like my mum and dad both smoked cannabis, and everyone I knew smoked cannabis, it was, seen, it was deemed as like the, the norm, it was acceptable. And I know in some societies, smoking cannabis is acceptable, but I mean, it's still a drug. But that's where my problems started with cannabis. And because I couldn't afford to buy cannabis, I was being dishonest and doing little, little things here and things there, you know, to... And I never really got, like... And I couldn't go home and say, I need want some new trainers, or I want this, I want that, my mates have got this, my mates have got that, because I never got that. So anything I had to get, I got through myself, you know what I mean? But, yeah, all my mates used to smoke cannabis. And that one thing I do think as well, if a, if a child's not got a, a father figure, specifically a lad, if a lad's grown up and he's not got a father figure, to act as a role model in his life, then that child will more than likely look up to like the oldest person on the estate, the big man on the estate, and see them as a role model. Mm. And I think, that's, I think that leads to a lot of people being in prison. You know what I mean? Because I never had a role model, someone to look to for support or ask for advice, like a father figure. And I used to look at like the lads on the estate and mm. see them as, it's naivety as a, as a, as a kid, you know what I mean? So I always, always used to see them as like a role model and all this, all they all smoke weed, so I just ended up smoking weed myself. We asked our guests their reflections on their time at the TC and what they thought worked well. Probably emotional management. I used to let my emotions get away from me. I used to flick like, like, you know, like a light switch, I'd, I'd fly off and on. Now, uh, 
if I can't change something, I don't let it stress me, and I don't don't get don't get wound up now. I won't argue. I used to I'd love an argument. Now I won't argue. If the answer's no, and I walk away. You know what I mean? I, you know, and I think that was more the emotional management groups. Yeah. And it's just more of a better community. The people and people respect each other a bit more. They seem to anyway. You know what I mean? It's like on here, there's, it's drug free. There's no drugs available. Well, I've seen people come on here and they've just been, you know, in the shell, and then a month later they're just, you know, like this incredible person. You know what I mean? So. For the risk of sounding cheesy, I think the real Phil was in there, but it, something something was going to happen. Inevitably, something was going to happen. My dad actually, my dad just tells it as it is, and he told me that if it wasn't for this happening to you, Phil, you, you wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be here. And he's right. The way I was, the way I was heading, the way I was going, something was going to happen either to myself or someone else. And that's not to say my offence was inevitable. Would I, two years down the line, if I'd have carried on drinking the way I was drinking and and, and just hitting that self-destruct button, would I still be here? Probably not. So I, I think, yeah, it's understanding the effect of my offending behaviour and how that's impacted on my victim's life and the lives of his loved ones and his friends who are all concerned about him. It has, this offence coming to prison, it has, has probably saved my life, yeah. Obviously the, the, the TC staff, the team, they've been amazing throughout the past 12 months. RCM, Mr Forsyth, uh, he works closely with Monica. So Monica is like the, the manager of the TC team and obviously Mr Forsyth is the, is the manager of the officers side of it. But they, they've, they've all been amazing and they've, they've pushed and tried to get things opened up quickly and just to where we are now to where we were is night and day. So big thank you to all the staff and for making it happen. My first bit of advice would be don't be scared to ask for help. Don't be scared to ask for help. Problem shared is a problem halved. Don't bottle things up. Try to stay safe. Always weigh things up, pros and cons. It sounds a bit corny. It's what we drilled, it, they've been drilled into us. But it's true. Weigh things up, take a step back, think before you act. Always try to look at things from other people's points of view. There's more to life than drugs. A lot more to life than drugs. Try to find enjoyment in, in pro-social things. When I was young and before I got taught these things, I found my enjoyment in the negative sides of life. Try to break the cycle early. After speaking with these men as a group throughout the day, it was really great to see how supportive they were of each other. The sense of community and camaraderie was really strong throughout the day, and we hope our listeners will be inspired by their ability to reflect and take responsibility. And we wish them all the best in the future. Thanks to HMP YMAP for supporting our visit. And a special thanks to Paskey, Andy, Scott and Phil for sharing their stories. Once again, shout out to Phil and Barry for Time for Change at HMP Preston for their help and support and being bird champions. Thanks to the Leaf Library for the music today. Expect social justice info, stats and prison insights from Bird on Twitter, Instagram and TikTok at Bird Podcast. You can also find out more from our website, birdpodcast.co.uk. See you next time on Bird.